If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, you are probably ready to go to Matthew, and yet we're going to hold you from Matthew for one more, well, actually for three more weeks. Uh, we are in a mini-series, and if you're just back with us from your vacation time, I know school started this week, and many of you moms are going through the school withdrawal. I, I thought that school was like a really positive thing for moms, that when it is, so some of you are confirming it is, in fact, a very positive thing, but others of you have kind of made the, you know, made me aware that there's a part of school starting that actually is hard on moms because their young ones are gone and not in the house. And I, I don't know, call me a man, but I just thought that would be great. I mean, they would be out of the house. And, and uh, some of you moms have been crying this week and you've had a hard time. And uh, you're back from vacation, kids are in school, and just like anything else, uh, we were going to have a summer where we were slowed down and enjoy some downtime, and that's not what we had. We had a busy summer, and now we're into a busy fall, and school is here, and all of that is happening, and uh, maybe you've just come back to be with us this morning. And if so, we have not abandoned the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, but we're going to take a break uh, before we jump into that text, and we're going to spend several weeks now, just outlining the foundational truths about the church, and in particular, about Grace Church of the Valley. And this is a critical time in our church's very short history. Uh, We're coming up on one year of being together as Grace Church, and I wanted to take the opportunity, and the Lord has been um, burdening my heart with the responsibility to lay before you the foundational pillars that hold this ministry. Where is it going? What is it doing? Why is it here? Um, what are the, the future goals and desires for this ministry? And, and what really makes this tick? And so if you're visiting with us, you've come on an interesting uh, Sunday because our general practice is the next paragraph. We spend paragraph by paragraph going through books of the Bible and uh, seeing the comprehensive picture of all that God has given us in His Word. And yet during this time, we're just taking a break to look at the, the broader scope of what God's Word has to say about His church and about this one as one of the local expressions of His body. Last Sunday, we took a look at the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and we saw that our Lord Jesus is, as the head, He operates as the Savior of His church. He is the sustainer of His church here at Grace. He is the one building and developing us. He's the sovereign. He rules this church. It is under his leadership, that any leadership exists. And he is most comforting. He is the shepherd of this church. And even those who shepherd this ministry, myself included, we are under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we spent last Sunday just getting acclimated with who is in charge at Grace Church. Um, That's sometimes a familiar question. There are two young, very young pastors here. And at least in the early weeks, it was common to say, well, how does that relationship work? And maybe you've wondered that and never asked it. But the the question behind the question was, who's in charge here? And the answer is, our Lord Jesus Christ is in charge, and he has delegated that leadership then to a plurality of men who give direction to this ministry who are called pastors. So that was our study last week. And this week we moved from the head of the church, and I could not, I spent this week, in prayer, looking for a better term to help this, but we're looking at the guts of the church, the guts, 
the innards. I thought maybe that was a little less uh, offensive, but a whole bunch of you don't even know what that means. So having lived in the South, the innards are nothing different than the guts. We're looking at what makes this ministry go. What's the internal life? What is the internal reality that generates ministry, that gives direction to the ministry? And we're looking at the guts of Grace Church. We've seen the head of Grace Church, now we'll see the guts of Grace Church, and in the future weeks, we'll see the body of Grace Church, its leadership and its membership represented in the body of Christ and all that God has for us as a local assembly. I am not someone that you would probably enjoy listening to the radio with in the car because I'm an active radio listener. Uh, I don't enjoy people lying to me on the radio. In fact, last night we were coming home from Los Angeles. We had shot down there for a wedding reception and we were coming home yesterday and, and some gal made a comment on I on some commercial or something and I said, that's a lie. And Renee just looks at me like, what is wrong with you? And I said, that's a lie. What she said is not true. And I listen to the radio that way and I rarely listen to talk radio. I am I'm almost anti-talk radio. There are some things that just destroy your joy and one of them would be talk radio. Uh, But occasionally I get in the car and uh, the Christian radio station is on or a talk radio station is on and I listen to a little bit of that Christian radio. This week that happened. There's a very popular radio personality, psychologist, who was on the radio and was talking. And I was listening to him just long enough to get fired up and to think this fits perfectly into what we're talking about here on Sundays. He made a comment, and it was in the sphere, the context of parenting. He talked about parents, and even the most godly, inscripturated parents come to the place where they say, God, I've done everything I can. I've done everything I can can do, and now I just have to turn to you. And I just got so frustrated, because that's not true. That's not the way a biblical parent operates. We don't get to a place where we've done everything we can and then we turn to God and say, I need your wisdom, I need your direction. We start with God's wisdom and His direction and we learn and then live, not live and then learn. No different for us as a local church. The church's mission is not to do everything it can, to muster up all of the energy it can, to be as creative as it can, to try to touch as many lives as it can, and then ultimately at some point down the road, we just say, but at this point we've got to just turn to God for wisdom and direction. We start there. That's why we do what we do, is because of what God's wisdom and direction has given to us through God's perfect and complete revelation His Word. And So this morning, I want us to look at the guts. And when I talk about the guts of Grace Church, all I mean by that are what are the philosophical underpinnings, what are the pillars that that we use as the directional elements revealed from God's Word, and we'll look at the Word of God to help us with these. But what are those core ideals that direct us, that drive us, that help us as we begin this ministry at Grace Church. There's a number of different ways to do a philosophy of ministry or to outline or articulate a philosophy of ministry. Our home church, if you will, our our mother church, if you will, for David and I at least, at Grace Community Down South, has a very simple five-point philosophy of ministry. Their philosophy of ministry, everything that happens is built on a high view of God, a high view of God's Word, a realistic view of man, 
which is the depravity of man and sinfulness of man, a biblical view of the church as God's body here on the earth, and a biblical view of the leadership of that church and how that is to operate. And so those five realities kind of, kind of give direction. They give, they give help and guardrails to decisions that are made and to the direction of the church. David and I, Renee was reminding me yesterday for hours on the phone, labored and labored before we ever set foot here in Kingsburg and in the San Joaquin Valley. We labored over those core issues that were most fundamental, most foundational to the vision of the local church as revealed in our New Testaments and really as revealed throughout the whole of our scriptures. And at the end of the day, we presented to the leadership team here 10 foundational commitments that we were willing to make for the sake of seeing God do His work here at Grace Church. So instead of headings, we actually put these into form of commitments. And I want to present those to you, five of them this Sunday, five of them next Sunday, and I trust at the end of next week, you'll have a grasp and a feel for what makes this ministry tick. What's on the inside of what happens here on a weekly basis when we gather to worship? What's on the inside of the decisions about the ministries that we will include and that we will develop as time goes on here at Grace Church? What makes us go? That's our goal for this study. So this morning we're going to look at the first five of those foundational commitments as revealed by our head in His Word. And the goal for that is so that we might be an effective local expression of our head's body here on the earth. Let me read these to you, just the Ten Commitments, just for the sake of getting you acclimated with where we're going. And uh, then we'll take time to dive into these in a little more detail. Number one, commitment number one, we are committed to God and His authoritative Word. And if you're new with us, um, then this will be something that I think is most critical for you to understand. And if you are not new with us, you know that this is the heartbeat of why we're here. We are committed to God and glorifying Him and His authoritative Word. Number two, we are committed to God-centered worship. Number three, we are committed to proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Number four, we are committed to making disciples locally and globally. Number five, we are committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth. Number six, we are committed to dependent, expectant prayer. Number seven, we are committed to a plurality of servant leaders. Number eight, we are committed to corporate ministry, that is, life ministry within the church. Number nine, we are committed to authenticity and accountability within the body. And number 10, we are committed to church discipline and church restoration. Those are the 10 commitments that we made before coming. These are the 10 commitments that to this day and will continue to go on directing our thoughts, helping us formulate what it is that we do in fleshing out the commands of our head as found in our scriptures. This is not an exhaustive list. In fact, I remember specifically David and I trying to make it ten and trying to think what are the most important and critical things. There are other truths that guide us. There are other commitments that we have that certainly inform our thinking. And yet these ten encompass the nutshell version of all that we think we must be 
the non-negotiables of what God has called us to be as a local church. Okay, so let's look at these individually and just take a few moments to look at these first five commitments that we have made as the foundational principles of Grace Church of the Valley. Number one, Grace Church of the Valley has a commitment to God and his authoritative word. This might seem like it could go unstated, and yet you are probably here this morning knowing that this cannot go unstated. Because the evangelical church in our country and even in our, our valley and our state has become so skewed in its purpose that it is a wonder at times whether or not the local church, which represents Christ, is committed to the glory of God and to his authoritative word, the Bible. The Bible is God's revelation. Here's the little blurb that we included in this discussion. The Bible is God's revelation to us in completion, perfection, and absolute authority. Therefore, consistent, expository, or explaining teaching, explanatory teaching, and application of what God has said in His Word is a must. This living Word is the primary means of our knowing and worshiping God in spirit and truth. Right? We are committed as a local ministry, as the leadership of this ministry, to making this church one where God is made much of and His Word is made much of as an authoritative and final source. I thought we'd look at a couple passages just to help us see this in our Scriptures and to help you know where we gather these commitments from. Turn to Second Peter, if you would, near the end of your New Testaments, near the back cover. You'll find first in Second Peter, and if you'll make your way to Second Peter chapter one, we'll see this theme for God's people of knowing God, of pursuing a knowledge of God, the one true and living God found in our scriptures, the creator, sustainer of all that is. In Second Peter chapter one, you'll see this theme repeated over and over again. In fact, it begins right there in verse number two. Uh, Simon Peter, this is the disciple Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who obtained a faith equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How or in what sphere? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. By what means? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so right here at the outset, though it is so elementary, I think it is important for you to understand that we exist as a local expression of the body of Christ at Grace Church of the Valley, we exist to know God and to make much of Him. It is our pursuit, it is our commitment as we study the Word of God to see uncovered the God of the Word. That is why He revealed Himself through His Word. That we might know Him. This is an amazing reality because God is completely set apart from us This is an amazing reality because God is perfectly holy and we are utterly sinful. 
And yet God has given us his word. He has revealed himself both in a created order in a general sense and a very special sense. He has revealed himself in all of his completeness in his word for us to marvel, for us to worship, for us to know him through Christ. And so we are committed to knowing and to glorifying God. This is the very heartbeat of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, another familiar passage I trust for many of you. Philippians chapter 3, Paul echoes this desire that the Apostle Peter has just commented on. He says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And the gain that he had was his self-righteous religious system as a Jew. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as rubbish, as loss, as garbage, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, Paul says, all of my personal righteousness, all of my external effort, I count it as nothing for the sake of the surpassing worth, that is the infinite value, not of some other system of activities, but of knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the perfect image bearer of the Father. Paul says, to know God is to give up everything else as mere rubbish. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so here at the very beginning, it's important for us to confess that we're here for God. We exist for Him, to know Him, to worship Him, to love Him, to obey Him. We're here for Him. This is not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. The local church is not a place where man is made much of. It's a place where man is humbled before the presence of God. And God is made much of. He is seen in all of His glory, all of His magnificence, and He is known by His people. We are committed to God. And secondly, in that first commitment, we are committed to naturally to His Word. If God is who He claims to be, then His Word must be revered, it must be studied, it must be obeyed as the authoritative Word of God. In fact, that is the very claim that the Bible makes for itself. I know these are... Definitely familiar text for many of you, but turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and we'll see this claim from Scripture about Scripture, which leads us as a church committed to God Himself, which leads us to an adherence to and a willingness to submit our lives under this Word of God. Now we're studying 2 Timothy chapter 3 on Sunday evening. So we're not going to dig deep here, but I do want to touch this passage. Some of you are not with us in the evenings, and I want you to see this, what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
Paul here is reminding Timothy, he's encouraging him to press on in faithfulness, and he reminds him in verse 14 of his spiritual heritage. And then he carries that idea forward, not just his spiritual heritage, but in 15, 16, and 17, he reminds him of the, the theology that he has about the Bible, which is called bibliology. Notice then this bibliology. Look in verse 15. He says, how from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And here's the truth about the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is capable of birthing us, rescuing us from our sin. James chapter 1 verse 18 says that we've been birthed, we've been born by the word of truth the ever-living and powerful Word of God. Then verse 16 goes on, and we know this passage, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and not only that, it is profitable, it is beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, and notice that last phrase in verse 17, equipped for every good work. And so there are a couple things that, that, are, that are found in this very short but profound portion of our Bible about our Bible. Number one, the Word of God is alive and it brings spiritual life. It actually is the means by which God brings life to us through the Spirit's power by faith in Jesus Christ, verse 15. Number two, it is inspired God breathed out this book. Peter tells us that the holy men of old wrote as they, were, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the completion of these writings that we have from cover to cover are the very breath of God through the instruments of those human authors. If, in fact, we believe verse 16, then the the, the reality of the first phrase in verse 16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God changes everything. If God breathed out this Scripture, then it only is natural, natural that it follows then and says that it's profitable. Well, of course it's profitable. It's the very Word of God given to us as human beings. And yet it goes on to say that the Word of God is not only alive and it is not only inspired but it is also working. It is profitable. Look at and notice in verse 16 the ministry of the Word. What does the Word accomplish? It teaches, it reproves, it corrects, and it trains, it disciplines in righteousness. We are committed at Grace Church to God and to His authoritative Word because we believe this verse is true. This is the testimony of all of Scripture about Scripture. That it is the very breath of God captured for us on a page with words, communication, and it is profitable and beneficial for those who will come in contact with it and surrender before it. And not only that, in verse 17 we find that it is not only inspired and powerful and active in the lives of God's people, but it is sufficient for the ministry of the church. Notice, verse 17, that the man of God, and in this case he's addressing Timothy as the leadership of the church at Ephesus, the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so understand, 
that at a foundational level, we are driven by a commitment to God and to His authoritative Word as inspired, alive, active, and sufficient for all that we need. Therefore, the implication is quite easy to understand. We teach it, we study it, we come back to it again and again and again, and we will not waver from the authoritative word being the direction of this ministry. This is our first, and it is our primary commitment. We are concerned with who God is and what God says, rather than who we are and what we want. As a foundational pillar, we are really concerned about Him. And rightly so. Programs will be utilized because God has communicated His desire for us through His authoritative Word. We only develop ministry programs for the sake of accomplishing what He says is important for us to be accomplishing in His church. It's not about what we desire. It's not about being trendy. It's not about keeping up with the times. It's not about what we like necessarily, though there's nothing greater than enjoying the blessings that come from obeying what God has given us as His ideals. It is because of Him. Now let me just pause because I'm concerned and I've been praying with concern this week about this morning. Because I'm concerned that right here we run into a real temptation together as the body. We've gathered at this meeting to worship God corporately. And you've come this morning with any number of things on your mind and on your heart. Many of you are struggling with trials, difficult circumstances that God has allowed in your life. And you've come this morning and you desperately need a word from God. And you rightly should expect it from your time together this morning here. Here's the danger. We're talking about the church. And it is very easy for us to get into a mere church discussion. Well, I'm glad that Grace Church is committed to God and to His Word. And I'm glad as well. I would echo that if that's your thought. I'm glad that we're committed to what we're committed to. But if you miss the reality of what we're committed to, then you have left here without the weight of what we're studying resting on your shoulders as a follower of Christ. And that is that your life as a part of the body of Christ is to be consumed with knowing and glorifying God and consumed with the reality of His authority translated to you in your Bible. Say, I just don't have clarity and direction in my life. I'm struggling. I'm wandering around. I feel like I'm just a hamster on a wheel. I never get anywhere. Are you committed as an individual, as your local church is committed to making much of God and making much of His Word. It will change. It will change you. Romans chapter 12 says that this Word will renew your mind. It will make you think differently. And as you think differently and see your world differently, you will respond differently. And it will change you from the inside out to the glory of your Savior. Commitment number two. We're not only committed to God and His authoritative Word, but we are committed to God-centered worship. Believers gather to worship and to be equipped and then spread out to evangelize. Church services must be primarily for the glory and pleasure of God, which results in the progressive maturity of His people. And this, again, is, is really 
local church 101. But we've come here to worship. We go out of here to evangelize. And maybe you've been a part of a ministry or you've seen a ministry that flipped that around. And actually, we come here to evangelize. And then somewhere out there, we actually get together for the sake of growth and worship as the body of Christ. It seems clear from our scriptures that it is the other way around. When we gather, our focus is God himself. And our focus is the worship of God as the gathering of his people. 1 Corinthians deals with this issue as Paul addressed the church there and tried to work through the issues that they were dealing with in their local meetings. He mentions that an unbeliever may actually come in, may see what's going on, and if they do, they should be terrified of what they see because they see God on display, and they should marvel at what they see because they see the body of Christ loving one another and worshiping God. The centerpiece of all that we do must be God Himself, and we're committed to that. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in His temptation with Satan. He's in the wilderness, and He gives us this little tidbit of truth as He wards off the temptations of Satan. You remember this portion. Jesus constantly responds with Scripture to the deception of Satan who constantly offers him, repeatedly offers him what is rightly his with the wrong way. Verse 5 says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'm not sure how that took place. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. This is Satan talking. I will give you all dominion is what he offers. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Here's the temptation. What, what the Father has promised you as the Son, I will give to you ahead of time. The only thing you need to do, it will only cost you a forfeiture of the rightful place of worship. You'll need to worship me, Satan says. And notice Jesus' response in verse 8. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus reminds Satan of the exclusive place of God in worship. Now this, this means something to us as a local church that gathers for worship each week. This means something to you as an individual part of the body of Christ as you come to worship with his body each week. This translates into a mindset and into a worldview of worship that is radically different from the, 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 the normal culture in which you live. Hebrews chapter 12 also speaks to this issue, and let me read that to you. You can just listen as I read. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, speaking about the blessings that we have in Christ. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see the early church, the believers were gathering together to worship, which resulted in prayer and in giving and in their study of the apostolic teaching. Those were the constant themes of the worship, the God-centered worship of the early church. One of my favorite passages, Paul speaks about his life worship 
his ministry for Christ. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have received the gospel. And then notice verse 7, But we have this treasure, that is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we have that treasure in jars of clay, in broken, sinful, human bodies. This is where we carry around the image of Jesus Christ and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 7 says, To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Your individual life as a follower of Christ, you live to show the power of God on display in your life. We as a church, as we gather together to worship God, we gather to put on display God's power. To revere Him with awe and fear as He should be revered. To worship Him with the joy of those who have known His forgiveness. So we are all about God, we're all about His Word, and we're all about keeping Him the middle of everything we do here in our worship. We're committed to God-centered worship. The prayers that we pray, the songs that we sing, the thoughts that we think must be accurate both in content and in their focus. God alone must be in the middle. Some of you have talked about music, and most of you have been accustomed to thinking of worship as music. And that's not accurate. Uh, Worship is the whole service that we enjoy together. There are a number of components to our worship. Singing is one of them. But some of you have mentioned singing, and it is a key component to our worship service. And yet, some of you have noticed that there is a certain flavor to the music that we sing on a consistent basis. Obviously, we are simple in our delivery of music by default. And yet we are very intentional with the music we sing because of its content. We want our music, our prayer life, our study of the Scripture to be consumed with God. Okay? Not unlike our commitment to God and His authoritative Word, the danger for you is to somehow find yourself happy that we do that and miss the reality that that is to be the testimony of your life. Are you God-centered? Where are your affections? Where is your attention? Number three, commitment to proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. We are not only committed to God and His authoritative Word, we're not only committed to God-centered worship, which flows from that, but we are committed to proclaiming Jesus as who He is revealed to be in the New Testament as Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is both the Lord and Savior. The two cannot be separated We reject the modern, shallow understanding of the gospel, which has been coined easy believism. We reject the idea that there is no cost to discipleship. It's just pray a prayer, say some words, ascribe to a certain set of beliefs, and go on your merry way. To become a follower of Christ is to leave yourself behind and by faith to pursue Him as the end of all that exists. And so we proclaim, and we are committed to proclaiming Jesus as both Lord and Savior. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, we mention this often, speaks to this issue. If you turn over to the book of Luke together with me, I'll show you a a fascinating portion that 
has really been an eye-opener for me and an encouragement to me. Luke chapter 9 is familiar. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, in verse 23, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is, leave behind all that you are, your agenda, your direction, and follow after me. But if you turn just a page or two over, Jesus helps us by giving us um, some real-life illustrations of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. In Luke chapter 14, just a few pages over, beginning in verse 25, you'll see his description of what it is to be a follower of Christ. And he uses really powerful word pictures for us as a culture. And certainly in his present time in which he was speaking, this would have had a great impact. Now great crowds, verse 25 says in Luke 14, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So there's the hard truth that to claim Jesus as my Savior means that I have come to grips with the fact that he alone can be master of my life. I've given up every other, every other affection in comparison to my affection for him and my allegiance to him. If my own family turns against Christ, Christ will come first. Now notice how he describes this for us. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, here are the illustrations, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Did you get those word pictures? Which of you has built a shed or has built a home and has not considered the cost that it will take to finish the project? If you haven't, you end up looking foolish because you have half of a house built without any covering on it. And we've all seen these projects frozen in time. Which king, he uses the picture of a king or a leader of a country going out to battle and, and, and knows that he's outnumbered, doesn't consider whether or not his shorter number can actually take over the larger number. And if he doesn't think about it, when he gets out there on the battlefield, he quickly sends someone to hope that this thing can be remedied before we actually begin this battle. The picture is a profound one, and he drives it home for us in verse 33. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Folks, Grace Church is committed to making much of God, making much of his word, to having a God-centered worship together, and it is committed to proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as the Lord and Savior of all who will turn and follow him. We cannot... We cannot ignore the hard truths of the gospel with some motive of making it more palatable to man. What is revealed must be communicated. 
There must be an emphasis on the hard truths of the Gospel. Jesus will save all those who come, but coming entails a total surrender of our lives for the pursuit of His will and His direction. We are committed to proclaiming that message of salvation to the repentant in faith. Perfection is not yet known for the believer, but the direction has permanently been changed. This is a commitment of this pulpit and of the ministry of our local church. Okay, number four, quickly, and we've got to finish. Number four, we are committed to making disciples locally and globally. And this really flows directly out of what we just got done talking about. We're committed to the message of the gospel as revealed in the New Testament. And we are committed then to taking that message as Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 communicate to us. As a command, we're taking that message and making disciples. The church should foster disciple-making within its own community through the relational witness of the body as well as in the world through church planting and missions. Both individually and corporately, we will purposefully and aggressively pursue evangelism. Now folks, we're going to have to stop with number five because of time. But let me encourage you with this reality. Missions exists evangelism exists john piper reminds us because worship doesn't you exist as a spokesman for the gospel because there are people who aren't worshiping god and in his patience and in his kindness he allows us to communicate the truth to them in this day of salvation and if they will turn in faith and repentance and follow Christ, they will be rescued as worshipers of God for eternity in His presence. Therefore, you and I should not view making disciples as the mission of some group of people elsewhere, or special people that we give so that they can go do this work, but rather as the heartbeat of all of our lives. In the little explanatory blurb that we give in our commitments, our ministry commitments, it says that we are committed to making disciples within our community through relational witness of the body. And we'll close with this thought. But missions is about the gospel, and it's about you as the church, the body of Christ, spreading through your relationships the message of Christ. And I would just ask you this morning... How are you doing and how are we doing as a local body and making disciples locally and globally? Are you speaking the truth to those that don't know the truth? Are you living the truth before those who don't know the truth? Are you boldly proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior? Are you giving the good news? Are we committed to that in word or is that taking on action? Missions is about the gospel. It's not about social change. It's not about socially helping people out, though those are all means of communicating the gospel or having the opportunity to communicate the gospel. Missions and discipleship is about making followers of Christ. Number five, our last commitment is to grace-motivated spiritual growth. And we're going to come back to this because I want to focus in on what this means to your life as a believer. But we are committed at this local assembly to a grace-motivated spiritual growth. 
And we'll touch on that next week. So four commitments that we've made it through. And I'm thankful to the Lord for these four that we've made it through. We're committed to God and His authoritative word. We're committed to God-centered worship as the practice of our ministry. We're committed to proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we are committed to making disciples locally and globally. Okay? That's our heartbeat. And I trust that is your heartbeat as a part of this ministry, as a follower of Christ, as a communication tool that God has rescued for his own glory. Make much of God. Make much of his word. May he be the center of our worship individually, privately, and corporately. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be known in its fullness as revealed in the New Testament, and may we boldly proclaim it for the sake of making disciples of Jesus.